Welcome back to Nota Bene here at Union Square. I'm Benjamin Godsell, joined by Nate Freeman. As always, what's up, Nate Dog? Excited to be here. Uh, me too. We have we've had a busy several days. We're about to have busier days. Busiest. Maybe I'm in the weeds as we discuss with our guest who's coming up just after the break here, uh, La Cresso, to go through all the auctions. Uh, it's you know it's mid afternoon on Monday, and I feel like the day the week is is I'm, I'm I'm out of control. It's all falling apart. There's a lot going on. We'll get into the auctions later. Let's briefly recap what we've been up to in the last week. I was in Los Angeles briefly to see two beautiful shows at Karma. Um, there was uh, Reggie Burroughs Hodges, fabulous new paintings. One of one of the, one of my favorite guys out there right now. He's fucking banging artists. Those things are incredible. Unbelievable. They're very expensive. They should be worth even more Absolutely. if you can even get one. Uh, also, uh, I never spent time with Reggie. An incredibly nice guy. I've never met him. What's he the like? The nicest, coolest guy. Just so down to earth, so generous. Like, we drank some tequila. It was great. Um, also, Obadiah Karma, my wife's mother, Sarah Charlesworth, an incredible uh, suite of works from her Neverland series. It was just a, a, an amazing opening, a great night. Dinner was at Moza, which was a ball or buyout, by the way. Oh, man. Nancy and I'm Silverton's sure, I'm, own Moza. I'm sure all the heads were there. I'm sure it was great. I, I don't even need to tell you guys who was there. Everyone was there. If you're in Los Angeles, go see it. Hopped on the jet, back to New York. A lot going on here. There was, you, you know, there was, there was a lot happening. Um, I'm trying to think back to last week. It feels like a million years ago. I guess I really got into the swing of things. I feel like I did something Tuesday too, but I can't remember. But really got into the swing of things. Uh, I broke my uh, I broke my anti gala stance to mm-hmm. head over to cursed Long Island City to the beautiful and uncursed PS One um, to go to the PS One gala. I got stuck in a ton of traffic because Joe Biden was in town uh, raising what? money for his doomed to fail presidential campaign. That's, that's not true. That's not true. I'm so worried. I'm so worried. Different podcast. So worried. Give money to Biden, people. <laughs> Is it possible maybe they just can both die before the election? <laughs> it's, it's possible. Am I going to jail for saying that? It's maybe. just possible. I mean, if you look at the acu- acu- acutarial, acuarial tables, whatever the insurance companies look, use. Like, I'm sorry our very good president held you up in traffic, Benjamin. Okay, anyway, got there. It, everyone was there. Uh, LinkedIn build with Rosie Azalon, the great designer and purveyor of wine. Tracy Ryan's big friend of the pod. It was mm-hmm. great to see Trace. Um, everyone's there. I was, uh, I was specifically there to celebrate Anarchy Yee, uh, whose work I'm a big, uh, supporter of, who was the honoree of the, uh, one of the four honorees at the gala. Um, I forget who else it was, uh, some much more senior people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was sitting with the 47 Canal guys, including former guest, uh, Scott Lorinsky. Not that he is, is, uh, he's uh, yeah. part of the, the extended uh, universe. You know who's sitting at my table, actually, who who's I that? wish I'd given more attention to? Mm-hmm. The collector Candy Barish. Oh wow, interesting! Just so happy that she wow. there. She could have told you something, maybe. She could have told me something, and she didn't. And I definitely would have given her more attention if I'd realized that she was about to be between art advisors. <laughs> to say it lightly. So next time I complain about money, remind me of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all we're gonna say about that for the moment. For the moment, I just don't feel moment. prepared. As just of yet. tune in next week. We'll have more. Yeah, full recap. So that was super fun. I mean, there was an absolutely insane speech given by i um, heard about this about james, mental, terrell. james terrell you know who obviously made that incredible um light piece uh one of his first uh ceiling cutout pieces at ps1 when Atlanta heist was running it mm-hmm. she gave the introduction i actually thought his speech was amazing and there's certain press coverage of it including by near and dear friends of mine that got 
like that seemed to just like the speech went over their head maybe maybe this weren't um there for it he's talking about like just like save like it was crazy it was absolutely crazy talking about fights in the museum like just before <laughs> ps1 opened like going after these uh german artists who had been quite aggressive with a young lady with a nail gun and using it like a real gun oh my God. um like he was the good guy and most of the stories it was a little bit off color at times but you know um it was cool what's funny is that evening, I could not make it to VS1 to shout out to uh, that great museum. I found myself at the opening of a new restaurant on East 4th Street called Elephant. The art was done by my dear friend Marcus Jamal. In attendance was his dealer, Anton Kern, um, Matthew Hayes of Whitecomb, and also Bob Colicello. Oh, uh, that's the, cool. The, the great author and journalist, of Vin- formerly of Vanity Fair, though Bob, you can come back whenever you want, as I told you. Um, he reported that he loved Terrell's speech. He thought it was the greatest thing he's ever great. heard. I was about to say, I saw Bob there. Yeah. Um, uh, he was. He could not stop talking also, about the, it. the food was incredible as it was done by Shout Mina, out Mina Stone. Stone. Uh, Although something I had never actually seen at a New York gala before ever. They serve pork as one of the main courses. <laughs> you, don't see that, you don't see that a lot uh, uh, on the gala scene here in Nueva York. Amazing. Um, wow. But that was cool. There was cool music. There was some big after party that I didn't stay for, but I bet it was great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what an evening. Before that, I, I stopped by uh, an opening uh, co-hosted by Sam Parker of Parker Gallery and Mickey Meng of uh, the Eponymous Gallery in San Francisco. They took over a, a space that we've been to a number of times, but I've not been there in, in a while on Grand Street, the Cursed Team Gallery space. Oh, is that where it was? I yeah. Didn't realize it was. I acquired a couple. I haven't seen the show yet, but I was great happy show. to place great, a couple a couple of pictures from it. Uh, mm-hmm. And Mickey's back in town this weekend. She promised me a private walkthrough. Full-on acid flashbacks walking in there. Like, just crazy shit happening. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that That's a whole standalone podcast. <laughs> that's like a true crime thing, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a whole podcast series. Didn't I give an interview to some guys who are doing like a like crime in the art world podcast? I feel like I did. I don't I know. Think, I think you did. I can't the remember. The days we, together. We just do so or much do we just flake on those emails? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's hard to say. If it doesn't put a check in my pocket, the odds of it getting a return right. are pretty low. But shout out to Sam and Mickey and the great show. Nice little gathering afterward at... Uh, Thai diner, which is just delicious. But. Uh, and the next day was uh, it was like ripper and ready to go. I uh, I was uh, at, at the I was actually showed up on time basically for the opening of the independent art fair. Wow, look at you! Uh, which looked great. Uh, they didn't mm-hmm. charge me any extra money for being an art advisor or bringing clients in with me, so I was happy about that. That was nice. Um, and uh, yeah, the fair looked okay. I don't. It didn't feel. Maybe it was my mood and maybe it had nothing to do with the fair, but it didn't feel as exciting as the indie used to in terms of it didn't feel like real A stuff. I mean, the galleries were great. It just didn't feel... A highlight for me was probably a Karma Bookstore's booth of ephemera. Yeah. Uh, like oh, my old God. exhibition posters and, and invitation cards and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Shout out Matt Schuster uh, of Karma Bookstore for putting together another amazing pop-up. The, yeah, the ephemera was really a highlight. They were selling... Uh, sh- exhibition flyers little cards that were sent out in the mail i think they were ten dollars a pop um and there was some really cool stuff if you dug in there like really crazy stuff there, there were new things um you know uh i was walking around with a client and uh and hung out with vito schnabel for a bit with mm-hmm. donna mira rubel that was cool and who was sitting at the desk kind of working on emails i guess it was, was Colchella. Colchella. <laughs> i saw that too <laughs> yeah I, I i linked up with with uh donna mira as well we just caught up with some dc shit they're they're really just balling out down there apparently yeah um i mean there was other good stuff i don't want the, the, there were things i i bought some things it was it was a nice familial vibe but it didn't feel like didn't feel essential the way it used to i didn't feel like i was like missing out on anything i breezed through honestly in the middle of the work day i just you know walked up from one world train and walked yeah, back which is quite easy um yeah i mean 
maybe the independent pride itself on on switching out its galleries every year uh which is i think very interesting to keep it fresh but it also means that you're encountering a lot of galleries that you might not be too familiar with or maybe don't necessarily have the quality that other galleries could have also there's just so many fucking art fairs this week not everyone yeah. can do I mean, everything i will say shout out i also want to say a shout out i didn't have a chance to stop and chat but maureen paley's booth was, yes that was, was great pretty exceptional some great paul p paintings and other figurative work mm-hmm. i really like that uh, some interesting stuff. The Tara Downs booth just around the corner from that, and also she's the, on a. She, we should get her on the podcast. She's on a press tour. We should. So some yeah. very interesting pictures of her in a cultured magazine piece. Uh, the rooftop was also banging. Did you go up there? It was just like I mean the weather was perfect like last week, so that helped. But you just went up there. Great view of Tribeca. The way, I mean New York's showing off these past few days. I know, it's great, it, it's stunning out. Um, Later that afternoon, so I stopped. My client had a lunch with his agent, so uh, he went and did that. And I, I, I slipped in a Barry's in between two art fairs. Not to brag, but I'm going to brag about it. You know who was spotted at Frenchette while Independent was happening? Who? Eugene Carroll. Really? Yeah. Oh. Some hot, hot goss that I, I wasn't able to... Get into the column. Get, get into the column. So, so there you go. We're here for your for your leftovers. It's What's not leftovers. Here? That was that's good shit. That's that good, good shit. I mean, like one of the most talked about people in the country of world not now right now. Tafaf was elegant as always, uh, bejeweled with flowers. Um, absolutely, some of the, the some of the best art around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, incredible pieces uh, on a number of the booths: furniture, antiquities, jewelry. Mm-hmm. Um, the oysters seem to be, by the time I got there, which was after Barry's, seem to be in short supply. I'm not sure if they're going through some budgetary constraints uh, over in Maastricht. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what the sheets are looking like, but there were definitely fewer guys, uh, you know, Less shuckers. Shucking. I can shuck. I would, I would. You could have stepped in to shuck. I could have stepped in. Why didn't you offer to shuck? I don't know. I mean, I could have shucked too, and probably not as well as you, but I mean, I could figure it out. It's yeah. not that hard, right? No, no. Yeah. I mean, you might slice yourself, but there's very good hospitals in the Upper East Side. That's true. Really right around the corner. Right yeah, there, so I'd be so fine. We'll be fine. Just get stitched up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You'll be right back on the floor. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Um, we uh, we went off with some amigos. Uh, yes, we did. After that, we were there for a few hours, and I linked up with you. You came a little bit later, and we headed over to one of the best restaurants in New York City. If not say. the world. Donahue's. Donahue's. I, I think that we, in the past, have not mentioned Donahue's on this podcast, but I guess... Are just, we going to blow it up? Exa- exactly, because we didn't want to blow it up but at this point you know it's an upper east side institution and you know you go in there all the regulars are there you know if if somehow it gets tiktoked out they'll probably find a way to just like stomp that out you know they'll probably just be like i don't think they'll seat you if they don't like you yeah right you know so i'm pretty confident that like our you know a burgeoning podcast empire can't let's just don't hope and, let's hope we don't do to that what we did to bevelman's because it did, is kind we of did our it fault. to bevelman's we did it to bevelman's um, we did uh, do but that but we sat we we streamed the the christie's auction on a phone kind mm-hmm. of uh, uh kind of jimmied up on a on a on a napkin dispenser and yeah uh, this was a business business meeting yeah, yeah it was a business meeting had some uh had some non-alcoholic and alcoholic beers mm-hmm. club sandwich incredible uh mm-hmm. a good time was had by all and then i had really wanted to go to long island city again to see the matthew barney exhibition which is still on and i now still need to go because uh, i, I it's incredible and i don't think either of us made it we both, I think we shared uh, with a friend a taxi over to Chelsea. I wanted to go see our friend Trevor Paglin's show at the Pace Gallery, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately could not get a chance to see it on Thursday, but I will be back. 
to oh, see Trevor's show. It was Trevor, very, it was very good. Listening. We love. And you know, I had 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 every intention to to head down to Lower East Side to go celebrate Rob Davis, who had had a suite of paintings that were sold out at Nina Johnson's booth at mm-hmm. the But you know. Uh, Mark throws a nice party, and it was out on that roof deck that Pace has in that building, and there were tacos, and there were sounds lots of really friends. Great. That sounds great. And uh, I kind of got stuck there. All of a sudden, it was ten o'clock, and I wanted to go home, mm-hmm. and I, I missed out on uh, uh, I missed out on Rob's uh, Rob's event, and I'm I'm sorry about that. But I had a great time uh, celebrating Trevor and the other shows they were opening, uh, and made it a relatively uh, early night because I feel like there was more to do on Friday. Oh, I know what I did on Friday. What did you What did you do? On I went Thursday? out to the country. I was just no, but what did you show. do on Thursday? Because we we went. To Chelsea together, and then I didn't see you. I went to the, the David Zverna Gallery. Oh, yeah. So the Luke Timon show, uh, big, big paintings, which I, I I found a little off putting at first, but I started to get into them. He's an absolute master, yeah, genius, absolute master. Yeah, they're, they give them a few minutes, and they take their hold on you. There's a great painting of Bob Ross, which is just like that really one looks bananas, <laughs> bananas. And did you attend the Zverna Gallery dinner? No, I I didn't. I. I did take some little time in a certain infinity room. Uh, shout out to the team at Zwerner for letting me skip the line, which was insane. And I don't know why you would wait in that line. It was, it's an infinity room. It was fun. I took some selfies, as one does. Saw the pumpkins or whatever they were. baby there, baby. Yeah, I think that's what that's that's, that's what they're that's for. Our babies. Yeah. Um. Um. And no, I I just actually uh I skipped the dinner uh, and went straight to a little watering hole on First Avenue and First Street with my wife and some friends. Oh, that's nice. I uh, uh, On Friday, I, I got up and I went to the MoMA with a yellow school bus full of uh, eight and nine-year-olds, I guess, <laughs> uh, to chaperone my son's class trip to the Museum of Modern I know this is my future, Modern but Art. I can still laugh at you. Oh, yeah, you know what? It was great. Other than, other than the bus ride part, it was pretty awesome. Uh, and we just went there and sat in front of a Luis Nevelson and had a really uh, intelligent and engaged educator uh, talk to the kids about it. Get the kids to talk about it. They didn't let you guest lecture. No, you didn't get and to, to dad split, split the class in two. Well, you know, I'm not going to talk about Louis Nelson because whatever. Um, but they split the class in two, and the other half of the class, not the class, not the kids that I was responsible for, went to go see a Sam Gilliam painting. And I think yeah. I would have had to step up if that had been the case. <laughs> Excuse me, Moba uh, Kids Director, yeah. whatever you yeah. are. You know, I definitely I, saw. We, we kind of went into the education center to kind of wait, for, you know, for the person on um, these benches. Definitely saw and Temkin's Slip out there, make no eye contact with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't just just grab her and be like, and uh, I kind of gave like a half wave, but it was not reciprocated. Oh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and that was that on the weekend. Did I see any? I went to I went to re-see the previews at Sotheby's and and, uh, and Phillips, which we'll get into in the second half of the pod. Right after this, we have uh, we got a busy day still ahead of us. Mm-hmm. It's three o'clock. We got like three hours and forty five minutes, bro. but. Uh, yeah, we do. But we also have Locke Kressler on the podcast this week. Oh my God, are you in for a treat, guys? Like, it's so good. We go through like all of the auction lots. Um, it's a lot, but you, I learned a ton uh, about certain things, kind of about everything, and I think you will too. And that's coming up right, right after this. Welcome back to Nota Bene. I'm joined here in the office in beautiful Union Square. By Vanity Fair's own Nate Freeman. What's up, dude? Not too much, Benjamin. We are really in for a week here. There are fairs. There are dinners. There are openings. There are auctions. It's it's week number two because we now have two weeks of art fairs in New York as well as two weeks of auctions. We're joined by Locke Kressler, our friend in London, uh, to really kind of school us a little bit. Um, Because I've been remiss. 
already feel like I am super behind. It's 1.30 on a Monday afternoon, and I feel like the week has already gotten away from me somehow, which is not a great feeling of the week that was, because we're here with Locke to go through the auctions that are upcoming this week and uh, get his take on things and the state of the market, which I have to say, as someone in the the lower bulge bracket, uh, things haven't been as great as they have been the last couple of years from my perspective and talking to friends. Um, but let's see what the auctions tell us about the state of the art market. How's it going over there in London, Locke? Good. Happy to be back on the pod. Uh, it's been a nice uh, bi-yearly uh, ritual here. And, you know, I think we always try and read the tea leaves and probably the best place to do so is in the auction. And... I think even just looking at the sales themselves, you can see quite a, a difference in terms, not necessarily in the volume of pictures, but just in terms of the value of pictures, which which I think stood out most notably to me. Uh, you know, going through some of these numbers, you look at sort of the total for the auction. This, if you take both uh, Sotheby's, Christie's, and Phillips together, has a low estimate of one point three billion dollars. I mean, that's we would have loved to have had that you know twenty years ago, but it's slightly smaller than one would expect given that uh, last November we had uh, an estimate at the low of $2.1 billion and ended up selling $3.2 billion. And obviously that includes the Paul Allen collection, which was a bit of a bit of an outlier there. Um, but even looking back the year, you know, a year ago today uh, in the May, 2022 sales, um, I thought it was quite interesting that they had, uh, 12 lots that were above $40 million. And this season, there's only three. And, you know, they still have lots of bigger things. You know, there's 12 lots across all, all the sales uh, above $20 million. But it feels like to me, you know, the real big ticket items are sort of fewer and far between. And it feels like the, the air at the top tends to get a little bit thinner. And we've always kind of said that, but it really kind of feels, you know, in my mind's eye, a a, a bit more, um, uh, a bit more present um, from from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're always going to have um, death and divorce, and to a degree, debt. Um, but and so you do have a number of name sales uh, that are coming up uh, in the course of the season. But it always occurred to me like this: if you're a discretionary seller, this probably wasn't going to be a season I would have wanted to put any of my higher value uh, objects up or even lower value objects, just because it feels like there's a lot of uncertainty in the air. And it's not really driven by the art market specifically, but just on a macroeconomic front, no one seems to know what's up. Uh, when I talk to like the the hedges and the finance bros. They just don't know. Um, in in the U.S., we obviously have um, you know uh, the the debt ceiling coming up. No one really knows what's going to happen there. No one knows if we have entered a recession, if we're in the midst of a soft landing, if there will be a soft landing, or if there's a cliff that's yet to uh, yet to appear in front of us uh, on the more larger economic scene. So it feels though everyone has money. No one's panicking. Um, so there's no panic sales, but they're. You know, people just feel unsure of what's going to happen. So if I had if I had a high value item, and I think this is probably something that the the auction specialists ran into is they were when they were in the business getting season, it was probably pretty hard to put together a compelling reason. Plus, it seems like the houses have been less willing to guarantee with their own money in order to secure a property outside of these large named collections this season. Yeah, I think over the last six months, we've seen you know arguably some of the house having to take a hit here and there on quite large work. So I think they were less aggressive um, in terms of their 
self-backing um, certain pictures. But equally, uh, as you mentioned, there's you know some incredible single owner or mixed sales that are within the within the auctions, and you know you get the continuation of Sanyuhas, the continuation of Paul Allen, the brilliant Mo Austin collection. You've got Gerald Feinberg. You've got uh, Allen and Dorothy Press. You've got the Coenca um, group. I mean, there's there's all these great groups, and I mean, it's you are seeing this kind of multi, you know, this sort of generational shift and it's a lot of older collectors, people who have passed away. Um, I mean, I guess that's, you know, it's what happens in our industry, but it seems sort of more prevalent, at least in this season. The one thing I did really like about each one of these sales, um, I'm not specifically for every one of them, but most of them had a really interesting component of not just buying a certain discipline. They seemed very interdisciplinary in terms of, both date, uh, type of artist, whether it was European, American, you know, early 20th century, late 20th century, there's a really great mix of, you know, focus and collection. And sometimes that can be great, other times not so much. But I think in a lot of these cases, some of them had, you know, just some of the top level things, whether it was, you know, Christopher Wool to Ed Rouget. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it as we go through the sales, but I, w- I was blown away by some of the collecting we saw encapsulated in these name sales. Uh, for me, like the Feinbergs, like that's like my taste right there. I think Mr. Black did an yeah. exceptional job with stuff that I particularly just am drawn to um, uh, with, you know, I'm not sure if it's always going to be the right time to sell that stuff right now, but there was just some incredible pictures, you know, obviously Cy Newhouse, uh, uh, your former boss, Nate, uh, some great things. Mo Austin, like what a great story of someone that was at the confluence of visual and auditory uh, culture in the 20th century. Um, Just, you know, dope, dope things. Um, So I guess we should get started and go through some of these sales now that we've taken a a look at kind of the big picture kind of concerns. Um, Or, you know, where where, where should we start here? I know you usually have some notes, Locke. What's your your druthers? I mean, we can look at the first sale that came up. I just think, you know, if we want to look just briefly inside Newhouse, um, obviously another great continuation of the collection. Uh, as we talked about in the last pod, I had quite an interesting time. It is uh, a part of my early mm-hmm, days mm-hmm. Uh, at Christie's. Um, so it's always very sort of personal to me because I just remember, you know, having these right. pictures sort of burned into my brain. Um, but, you know, it's it's fascinating to see a lot of the, um, the push from, you know, the Francis Bacon self-portrait was absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um, you know, 1969 work that was, you know, originally... Valerie Besson's collection, uh, who's a you know, friend of the artist. Um, and he, you know, purchased it almost 20 years ago. And, you know, it, the last comparable self-portrait, I think that you can kind of look at, sold for a similar price in 2007 for around 33, and this made 30 34.6 million dollars. Um, but I think it's, it's a strong testament to Bacon. And if you get the quality of work, even though it's a 14 by 12 inch painting, um, it's just got such a wall power to it that um, yeah, it's, it just stands out so so strongly. This picture blew me away in the view. Totally. I had never seen it before. And like it read much larger than those dimensions, right? Like it could it could hold yeah. a big wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in a great room. You know, it, it had that Pablo Picasso, which was like kind of a weird painting from my, you know, that's something I have a, an educated interest in, but no, no specialized knowledge in, but it was a strange uh, Picasso uh, for me, um, and uh, sell. I mean, kind of sold at the bottom. The, it was like there was like a weird, like there was a Richter in the Picasso, which was kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think with the Lee Miller portraits, they're always. I mean, she was actually quite a beautiful woman, but for some reason, Picasso tended to port- paint her in this kind of slightly 
tough uh, way. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was the wife of Roland Penrose. She was an incredible sort of wartime photographer, mm-hmm. actually good connection with Cy Newhouse. But there was a Lee Miller portrait that came up last year and sold for about half that. So I think it was a little ambitious to be pushing it to this level. It's um, I, I love the surface of it. I love the painting, but it's not everyone's easy portrait to own. And I think that was sort of probably the reason why it didn't fly. I think if they had it at 10 to 15 million, you would have seen much more sort of fireworks behind it. Um, but things, you know, again, that, that did have great fireworks. I loved the Lee Bontecu. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's just an absolutely exceptional piece early 1959, 1960 painting or sculpture. Um, and I, you know, it, hammered at $7.2 million against a $3.5 million estimate. And that's pretty close to the record price that was set a couple of years ago. But, um, you know, that was just exceptional work. And I think when you get that, they're so rare to, to get anything of that, especially that sort of scale. But um, it's uh, it was a real, real sort of beauty. It was a perfect bond to cue from, from, my, from my point of view. Um, one thing I did notice um, in the sale and, and several people commented on was the relative weakness uh, of the results for Jasper Johns right. uh, that came up. Uh, and perhaps these three weren't the best examples of each of the series they represented. Um, but, you know, I, I made the point to some friends, um, that, you know, there's something about, you know, he's shown at a gallery for the past 10, almost 20 years, which is kind of hermetically sealed. Uh, Matthew Mark sells mm-hmm. to the same nine to 12 people pretty much <laughs> over and over again. And that perhaps is not the healthiest thing for the long-term viability of an artist market. Um, Cause he just kind of falls out. They just, you'd think that the limited supply would increase prices when they appear at auction, but the case he's kind of fallen off people's radar in a way. Um, and I wonder if that was a case here. There's just no oxygen in that market, or it was just a case of these not being perhaps examples that the market were so interested in. They were, they're, all three of them were tough pictures in their own way. I would, I mean, they weren't the the most commercial images, and I think what people tend to want is you know an American flag or something that's mm-hmm. like highly in, indicative of his, his kind of commercial practice. But I think they were still good examples. Obviously, Sainu has a, an astute eye plus very good access to his work, but he collected him very much in depth. And I think the difficulty is, is there's certain artists that just don't necessarily tran- translate into auction that well. You look at someone like Rauschenberg, who, you know, by comparison to his peers, should be selling for much, much more in terms of that that sort of price point. But um, I always find that unless it's the like, sort of perfect picture, they always tend to kind of just lag a little bit at auction. And when you try and put multiple works into one sale, I think that also kind of takes a lot of the, uh, the focus away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, moving along, anything else from the sale stand out to you? I mean, as a whole, it seemed like it was a, it was an easing into the two weeks of sales. You know, there was, there was absolutely no, no uh, fireworks. No. And I, but I think like the de Kooning was incredible that I was, you know, it's, super exceptional painting to be able to sort of yeah. have an auction and, and, you know, and, you know, it did what it did, but it wasn't necessarily something that sort of blew the barn doors off, but, um, but it was a, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous painting. And then we won't get fully into it cause we don't concentrate on the day sales here, but there was a day sale the following day that had like a couple of highlights, but a lot of soft spots. And mm-hmm. honestly, I think it might have been a mistake for Christie's to run that day sale so early in two weeks of auctions and fairs. I'm not sure if it had the full attention of the market space that it would have otherwise. I mean, day sales are always a little bit hit or miss in that way, but like... 
Yeah, I mean, but I'd also argue, I, I sort of, I think, made this well, point the last time. We need to pause for a second, gentlemen. Okay. It says right error. I don't know what that means. But it's still recording. Cut that, cut that, cut that. Can you record it doubly through the, the Zoom? Recording in progress. Sure. Everyone say a little prayer to the gods of your understanding. Oh. It seems like it's still going. It's going. All yeah, right. Sure so anyway, fine. as you were saying, uh, the day sale fell a little under the under the radar, maybe. What were the highlights? Yeah. Did you guys mark them? Nope. Yeah. I mean, what I was going to say was having ran a day sale for many, many years, uh, and I mentioned this in the last podcast, was that you know having a painting in your sale sell for over a million dollars was like the unicorn. It didn't happen. And it seems that it's happening more and more and more every time the sort of seasons progress. And they've done a very good job of selling these. But you know the idea that they had you know, a Jackson Pollock that sold for $6.7 million in the context of a day sale. It's pretty crazy to me. I mean, it's fantastic for those heads of sale, but um, equally they had a, uh, a beautiful Joan Mitchell from 1959 that made $5.132. And I mean, it's, those are, those are strong, strong results um, in the context of the day sale, especially because both of them were estimated at three to $4 million. Yeah, no, th- that is true. That is true. Um, I just I, some of the younger or more uh, mid-career artists they had up, which were not great examples, though, seemed to have trouble finding any bids at all in the room, especially in the second half of the sale. And yeah, uh, and you know, I have to say, uh, you know, I have a lot of love for people that work day sales. I think it's like it's also where the art market, I think, actually takes place in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, and it's a tough job because you have hundreds of lots and trying to find bidders, matching up uh, potential bidders with with properties is, is a challenge when you just have that much scale. Um, but I didn't get the kind of you know, I used to hunker over like underbidder lists from seasons past, like stay up till midnight the night before sending out text messages to people, and I was surprised not to see. Um, at least my phone blow up with any, Hey, just, you know, the X is quiet in the sale tomorrow. Do you want to place a a, a low bid? Um, so I tend to agree with you on that. I mean, that was sort of our calling card of just slightly harassing all of our clients, trying to get them focused in the day sale after a very, you know, eventful evening sale and, um, and our colleagues and the consigners in terms of the reserves. But, uh, um, yeah, I think it can be a, a bit patchy and it seems like they were sort of less aggressive in terms of trying to get um, people on certain works, which as you said, the, the day sale is always the sort of, you know, ready to wear, but it shows where the market is. Whereas the evening sale is the sort of couture designer things that, you know, don't really necessarily have a real bearing on the marketplace. It does, but not as much. I think the, the real bread and butter is when you look at the day sale results. Yeah. And maybe something we can touch on once we've gone through these sales, also just the, the way that the sales weeks have evolved from having very clearly delineated, like this is the week for Imod, this is the week for post-war and contemporary, mm-hmm. and, a, mm-hmm. and a rhythm people are used to. We switched that up in the post-COVID era, and I wonder if that's just, it's harder for, for, for some people to kind of get, wrap their head around. There's just so much material. It's coming in so many different channels, um, and I wonder if that dissipates attention from the buying public. Um, but we can we can circle back to that. It's just something that's been occurring to me. No, I mean, listen. I think it's it's quite it's quite true because COVID sort of blew everything up in terms of a calendar. They were throwing auctions into September and October in New York, and I, I think it had a real issue for people actually concentrating and focusing 
And now they're still, I, I, I do quite like the 20th century concept. I don't think they're, they're pushing it to somewhat of an extreme when you include like a Rubens in a 20th century sale uh, auction. <laughs> but overall, I would say you really, it, it does benefit in some ways, but it's a few hundred years, you know, it's fine. Exactly. But it, it does make it really challenging. I think from a collector's perspective or someone coming out for an auction that wants to see both auctions, you trying to spend two weeks in New York is a really challenging thing to do. And uh, if you're not there already, and it just seems to kind of drag on. And as you said, you're not really sure when the day sale is going to be or what auction house is taking place at what time. So it's it's a bit confusing even for professionals like us. Um, well, speaking of the 21st century, tonight we have uh, an evening sale of, I think all objects were made, nah, not, not quite, uh, they were made in the 20th and 21st century, even though it's called the 21st century evening sale, which is funny as I scroll through here now. I mean, I have some highlights. This is a, I, I will fully admit, though I am a contemporary art advisor, there's three or four names that are totally new to me. Um, we can even skip over them. Um, but... no, which ones are new to you? Let's, let's go over them. I mean, not new, but like Robin Williams, like not someone that's really on my radar. PPOW, man. Come on. Uh, you know, great gallery. Uh, uh, Vorjek. I don't know who that is. Kavarik. Yeah, I'm not sure who that is. Um, there are a few others, but then there, then there are some names that I'm, I'm quite familiar and a big fan of, uh, both younger and older. Um, obviously, I think the highlight is the Jean-Michel Basquiat picture that's coming up, um, which is you know center of the view and I think center of a lot of people's mm. attentions. What stood out to you uh, going through this sale lock? Any, any piece of property you have some personal attachment to? Well, i just say that Basquiat in particular, as you were saying, it's is Valentino's. You know, an incredible piece. It's Valentino's. Uh, you know, he bought it in 2005 and paid 5.2. They're now sort of saying it's in the region of $40 million. I always like these works that are kind of built together. So it's not just this sort of straightforward oil on canvas. It's got a little bit of grit and kind of, uh, life to it that, that I love. Um, that I expect, you know, should do well. seems like Basquiat, you know, has continued to sort of defy a lot of the, um, you know, marketplace is, you know, huge expectations. And it seems like this is a good example to come up and, and really sort of um, hopefully find, uh, find a nice, nice new home for it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It's uh, just, the it's, it's the kind of Basquiat yeah. that I just want to say, it's the kind of Basquiat that if you're only going to own one, I would, yeah. be, I would be okay with owning just this one. Like it's totally representative. Yeah. It has all the power you need. It's got everything in it, you know, in terms of what you want from a Basia, which I think is, is fantastic. So, and, you know, obviously good provenance, et cetera. So, um, and then I, I mean, the Ceci Brown sort of jumped out at me. Um, totally. Obviously, she's, she's got a good bit of focus right now with the Met, but, um, but, you know, coming in with an estimate at five to seven million dollars, it's a great painting. It's got great scale to it, but it's still a huge, huge number um, to kind of be starting at uh, considering that her record price is at 6.7 million dollars so i think they're really sort of pushing the bounds at least on that one in terms of you know what the expectations are versus you know, we'll see that a number being. of times in the auctions uh I think that they had to over without giving guarantees they ended up overestimating a number of property and i think it's always to the detriment of the final sales through price. Not always, but more often than not, you know, low estimates build like a great floor for bidding and then result in higher results for consigners. It's just a really hard concept to try and sell through it when you're trying to get the the signature signed on the dotted line. I do think you know, the Cecily market is red, red hot. I wish mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. this was 
estimated a little bit lower. I would expect, and I don't have the number in front of me, but I would expect Five to world, seven. No, no, but I, in terms of the world record, which is just like six point something, I think I would expect this yeah. to beat it. But I think this this estimate, this high estimate, might actually undercut it and and see it underperform and not quite beat that result. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, even if it hammers the low, it's like going to be like just under, I think, right. probably the record price. So mm-hmm. it's it's a big number, but it's also you know a very commercial work. And as you said, it seems like the uh, requests for Sassy Brown and Nora and Kusama seem to be the most. I, I would be. I would. Be, I, I would also. I would not be. I also would not be uh, surprised to see it. You know, come close to come close to that ten million dollar number. Wow. This Maybe. is what we always like. Embarrassingly, whenever I yep. go back through. <laughs> Luckily, no no one listens to these again after a month later. But you know, right? They'll hear. They'll hear. They'll hear. In fact, I'll go. I'll go on the record. I, I think that this price will hammer above the high estimate, and I think it's all in price will break ten ten million dollars, oh creating God, a new world record for the artist. <laughs> okay, great. Glad we have that on the record. Yeah, I don't think so. Start editing, I think, on this podcast. Luckily, I'm, luckily I'm not going to edit this probably until maybe after the sale tonight. So. <laughs> Um, we don't know I, who's I do selling that. Least, do we? Uh, wasn't it? Oh God, it was in Chicago. Um, who was selling that? Botchin Gugosian 2013. Yeah, sorry, I don't have. Yeah, I don't know who's. I don't know who's selling this one. No. Um, we can probably find oh, out. I think it's uh, Pritzker. No, oh, I think it's selling right. it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank yeah. you, Governor. Um, <laughs> uh, what else? This is a, this is a bit. This is, Aren't this, you the journalist? Uh, I know, but uh, it just just came to my mind. I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do love the Selmans. I mean, they've got a lot of you know. There's some nice. great stuff. There's some stuff that I think might be might, might be tough. Uh, although you know the Coons uh, mirror ball, I guess that's a pr- that, that's an estimate that's well below what this picture cost when it was purchased. Primary. Good point. Um, but still, uh, that's always been a tough series uh, to to resell. I think there's going to be uh, I, I think there's going to be some 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 tough moments ending the sale. I think this is two seasons in a row with a uh, with a Kenny Sharf. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> Kenny in the evening sale. Exactly. Um, anything else jump out to you here? It seems pretty mid. I gotta say, this is a mid sale. This is like I, I I'm I'm not going. Like that's how mid it is. I mean, yeah. it's so funny, actually. I have to say, like, in terms of going to the sales, it's the, A, the amount of bidding that's now taking place almost solely on the phones, the video quality they have in the auctions. Right. It's kind of, you know, uh, I think it was last May when I was in an auction for, like, I, it was at least six hours, and you're like, why am I here? <laughs> I know <laughs> everyone else watching this from, from Donahue's. <laughs> as we did the other night um i i used to think there was some value not just in the like in the concrete seeing who's bidding on stuff and that kind of thing i used to think the schmoozing being seen there right like somehow was a payoff but now i feel no compunction about having to be there unless i'm unless i plan on bidding on something like i generally won't arrive or if there's something i'm really you know if there's going to be some some fireworks on something and i want to be there for the historical moment right i don't think i need to, to hustle to get tickets um, and the next sale in our uh, endless weeks is. Should we look at the um, 20th century evening sale before we get to coming yeah, up? Yeah, of course we should. Of course we should. Um, they kicked off with a great little Ed Rocher, the business, which I loved and had a lot of deep bidding on. Um, mm-hmm. And then obviously the burning gas station 
was a disappointment, I think, in terms of like the people bidding against it. But I think it was a great price. It was a killer painting. Uh, one of my favorite things from, from yeah. this, this sort of season. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, kind of a perfect Edward Shea in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, he only made five of these. Um, he made a sixth one in the 80s, but... Um, that room know, in Christie's was, was quite spectacular. Uh, that Roche little mini room was amazing. It was unbelievable um, before it all, all went. Yeah. And the, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I think the press collection was, was quite, mm -hmm. quite impressive in terms of the work. Um, also the, um, Agnes Pelton. Yeah. Um, someone I was less familiar with, but kind of read a bit about, it. I thought it was quite a beautiful ethereal painting, but, um, kind of a crazy number. I mean, it blew out her previous auction record, which was $230,000 that happened in 2018 at stair auctions, which was against an estimate of 400 to $800. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and, I mean, she's had some, she's had a track record. She's, you know, obviously was friends with X Martin. There's a, a great connection to sort of, you know, her and a lot of, you know, wonderful female artists, but, um, and she had, you know, the sort of traveling retrospective at certain Phoenix went to, uh, Santa Fe and then went to Whitney, um, and Palm Springs. And obviously this has been kind of a cover a lot, you know, or cover, um, for many of her sort of retrospectives, but I think it's like the best of, so, um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, um, sort of setting a very high precedent for something and jumping that. Yeah, which, pro which probably can't be met by any of the other work. Um, a, a fascinating story, her life. And again, we're just seeing the market so hungry for new names, not meaning new, brand new artists, but names that heretofore have not been in evening sales, have not been digested by the market in the same way, and just looking to kind of not rewrite, but, but add some context to the history of art as told through the marketplace and what is valued in financial terms to match up with what we're valuing more as a culture now, right? Yeah. Um, um, did you want to I, mention? I was also. I was just going to say I was quite struck by the um, much more sort of traditional impressionist works. I mean, they seem to really fly. There were two Renoirs. One sold for you know eleven, almost twelve million dollars against a four point four to six million dollar estimate. Um, it was a Degas that estimated two to three sold for five point six. Uh, you know, the Toulouse Lautrec drawing was estimated four hundred to six hundred, made two point seven. And then that little Argentoy Renoir made, was estimated at one to two and made 4.5. And I think that is quite interesting in terms of telling because I feel like sometimes that has sort of been seen traditionally slightly unfashionable and obviously sort of helping bolster that market, which I obviously focus on quite a bit. But it was it was really nice to kind of see that that um, strong interest. Yeah, and they were, they were all nice examples. I think you see people looking apples to apples at what the same amount of value buys in the 20th post-war and contemporary space and feeling as though, you know, um, something that's more, you know, has, has been proven to stand the test of time and is and is in the books. And, you know, the Rousseau, obviously, uh, you know, crazy price. Oof. Was, I mean, you just can't find anything like this. Uh, if you go to the Keller Brazen, there's just, there's nothing in this kind of scale, and especially from this sort of jungle period. Um, and I mean, he's painted the year he died, and it was, you know, there's like two dozen of these paintings, and almost all of them are a museum collection. So, and it was also coming from the Whitney family. And so it's, it's had this incredible history to it, uh, and also the rarity 
the scale. Um, I think that really sort of was a help kind of push that up um, to, to such a high degree. But there's nothing to really use as a precedent there. I mean, yeah, there, there, like there were no there were no comps. There was there was no way to no. value it. I mean, I, I sold a small one, nothing like this, uh, about five years ago. But even that was just like. Someone asked me to find one, and I couldn't believe I actually managed. <laughs> it took a while, but I actually managed to find one. Um, but I thought that was the last one I'll probably see in the next, you know, 10, 15 years. And oh, it was really nice to see. The O'Keefe market um, still seems incredibly healthy with yeah. a ton of demand for a variety of different types of work. Um, I think everything Absolutely. broke through the top of the estimate, or certainly with, uh, with fees included. Yeah, I mean, you look at... Anything from the, the Paul Allen collection did exceptionally well. Uh, O'Keefe, the late David Hockney's, the Edward Hopper. I mean, they had a pre-sale total low estimate of $26.6 million, and it sold for $80.9 million. I mean, that's a huge jump up in terms of the overall results. And Is, is that just Allen? Yeah. The, like, like, like what um, accounts for that kind of bump mm, in this market, yeah. in this economy? I, it, I, I, it's the only thing I can kind of say. It's this, you know, the sort of storied collection that's kind of set records that mm-hmm. does it. I mean, they're all commercial works. Um, I'm sure I'll get a lot of hate mail for this, but I don't really understand the value of uh, late Hockney at this level. But um, it's been happening. Obviously, we've seen it time and time again, not just for works in Paul Allen's collection, but um, by comparison to a lot of the 60s works, it's just kind of blows my mind the numbers um they're nice commercial works i'm not saying they're, they're not great paintings but just in terms of the actual results and, and value it just seems kind of crazy to me but that's just me um well we're talking about the, and there was the the, the ex inigo painting too <laughs> yeah oh yeah which one was that <laughs> it's the one with the gates uh it was called the gate yep yeah, yep i think that was um, you know, and while we're talking about the highlights of the sale, and we do, you know, there were a couple of high value lots that were not able to find buyers uh, in the sales room, right? The Legere, mm-hmm. the Legere, which was a weird one. I didn't find it terribly attractive as a picture. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and then a painting by the Spanish painter, um, mm-hmm. which was perhaps just a yeah. It, was a, it looked really nice in the view. And there was, you know, Biggie Clot that you know. I don't think it was the greatest anthropometry, but it was, you know, it was still commercial. It came from a great collection. Um, I, I know it had been shown a little bit beforehand, but still, it's it was a, it's a you know, solid commercial painting. And uh, Picasso as well, sort of very poppy one. Um, I'll find a buyer, the sort of pink one. But that to me also seemed, again, where you're trying to sort of meet the expectation of the seller and the marketplace. And whilst it's not to say it wouldn't have gone up to that level, um, it just seemed like they were way off in terms of the, the pricing on that one. And there's this weird phenomenon, I'm sure you don't have to deal with it, but um, the estate paintings, which are paintings that remained in the estate after Picasso died, he only sold, or he only signed paintings when they were sold. Oh. So there's this weird discrepancy, which I think is, you know, it's such a stupid one, but um, it tends to be a thing that happens in Asia where they want to have Picasso on the front of the painting. And that can also sort of turn some people off. I mean, the amount of conversations I have with people about that, needing to have that signature on the front um, is absolutely ridiculous. But, yeah, that, that, doesn't come up, that doesn't come up a lot in my life, but that sounds incredibly, incredibly <laughs> frustrating. Right. 
especially when you're talking to museums uh, in the region. Um, and the last thing I think that really kind of jumped out at me was the fact that we have not one, but two great Blinky Palermo's that came to yeah. are coming to market. This one just sold, um, and one that um, and one that uh, is coming up this week. And you know, these are always you know hotly, hotly looked after to try and find for people's collections. You know, a lot of them have because they're so um, a lot of them are done on silk or you know raw raw canvas, they tend to have some kind of condition thing. So you really have to be very careful with them. But of those paintings, they're, there's just so few that are in private hands. Um, I mean, in, since they've been tracking paintings on uh, Artnet, uh, there's only been 22 that are, I would say were large scale paintings huh. that have you know, ever, ever come to market. And many of those were repeats over the years. Wow. Um, and this almost was, it was a hair off of making the um, the the record price, but I think next week's or sorry this week's painting is is really a stunner. That's at Sotheby's and probably should set set a high precedent for it. I absolutely love that this market continues to perform so well because it's really I mean this is a connoisseur's market in my mind. This isn't something that's a name brand. It's not something that mm. you know people come into your house and know what it is on the wall. Mm. I mean it's really for people that have have really thought and considered what painting is after the age of mechanical reproduction and really, you know, and, and really have deep knowledge that it continues to also perform financially just gives me hope for the universe and the world at large. I have to say <laughs> totally. Cause this is like, this is like kind of for oh, real heads yeah. only. No, complete. I mean, this is absolutely, um, you know, I think you have to be quite an intellectual to understand it and, um, and collect, but at the same time, it's it's great because it's such an important part of our history, um, especially in that kind of middle, minimalist aesthetic. I mean, the collections that do have these works are, are highly, highly sophisticated collections. It's, yeah, I'm sure it went to another one. No scrubs. Um, all right, we got we got a lot of sales to go through. Um, Sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I, listen, I, I'm here for it. Um, Me too. W what was next? So that was the 12th. We went through the 15th. Is the next sale over on York Avenue? Or should we just, uh, or should we just stick yeah. with Christie's for now and go through the? Uh, let's, let's let's stick with Christie's and we can we double go back. To, okay. Yeah, because I think the last sale that is Christie's really to focus on is Feinberg, which is coming up. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. oh, I love Again, I, lo I love this I love our, this collection guys, so fucking our much. Our guys, yeah, I I was geeking out hard. Yeah, yeah I mean anything from you know the Alice Neils, Barclay Hendricks, obviously the Christopher Wool is incredible. Mm -hmm. It's like sort of two of these the color. Um, An orgy like, scene okay. from Gerhard Richter. I mean, come on. I yeah, mean, it's it's awesome. Uh, there's nothing Richter really Fox, more. Now, from what I understand, Fox. this uh, uh, this collection was assembled by an art art dealer and art advisor. Is it Michael Black? Is his name? Is that right, Nate? Uh, yes. As we discussed the other day, I believe that's correct. Um, if you want me to double check. Yeah, I would because I'd feel like a real schmuck if I got his name wrong. Because I think he did an exceptional job. Uh, hopefully, he yeah. made some money coming and going on this. But any collection that has both Picabia and Barclay Hendricks in it, um, I think is like a special view on the world and how it operates. Yes, yeah, Mike, Ma Michael Black, Pierre Soulage, uh, Robert Ryman, you know, uh, Joseph Cornell. I love these uh, Medici pieces. I mean, it was a really kind of daring collection to say the least and I, I love it yeah i mean this this bourgeois like kind of uh tabletop the nature study sculpture is absolutely incredible mind-blowing um 
Yeah. I th- and I can see elements. In the, the funny thing is, this is a collection, like you said, that it's it it spans the years and styles. It could you know, there's stuff in here that'll appeal to younger collectors, meaning you know, fifty or younger, and to more old school collectors that are maybe filling in. Um, what do you what do you kind of what highlights are there for you in the sale lock? Uh, so I was saying that Christopher Wool is exceptional because it's so rare. I mean, I think there's only two paintings he did in color of the text. Um, someone had mentioned something about kind of the connection with uh, Martin Kippenberger and sort of mm-hmm. pushing him to use color. Um, I, I love the Joe Bear. I mean, this is on the lower end, but it's, it's just Josh Bear's mother, but I think she's an absolutely fantastic artist. Mm-hmm. Just find your son. Agree. Yeah. No comment. Um, we... <laughs> Hopefully, um, Gwyneth Paltrow can finally buy her Rufus Awa. Yeah, um, Goop, you listening? This is your chance. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's it's all over. I mean, again, the 1956 uh, Sulash, I think, is exceptional. Um, it's you know, it's it's all over, but at the same time, it's kind of great in these little vignettes. I mean, hanging it together must have been kind of quite quite it, a lot. But, it was intense. It was really intense, that, yeah. that free hang. Yeah, well, they did a salon yeah. style wall for love, but from what I understand, it's it was rehung over the week, or it will be yeah. it was rehung over the weekend, and I think everything has more space now. Although I loved it as a salon, you know, not the most commercial hang. I'm really interested. You know, the Christopher Wool market has not been on fire for the past four to five years. Really, um, this is a really special picture. I'm hoping that it that it stands outside of what the general trend lines have been for his commercial market. Yeah. I mean, the other one traded, you know, as it was sort of, as it was starting to kind of peak a few years ago, but then obviously sold within this kind of price range. I think there's precedent for that, that type of painting to begin with. And I think there's a lot of buyers and a lot of collectors who are out there that despite kind of looking at market trends would just want to have this because it's, you know, an exceptional work and having uh, Feinberg bought this in 1994, the year after it was painted is, you know, I think also just fantastic as well. And I love the Richter. Yeah, I think that's a killer painting. But it's funny because going through it, um, there are, um, you know, it's like, it'd be a funny one being a grandparent with like grandchildren running around because there's some really tough pictures. And I I mean, I kind of tip my hat to them for having it because, you know, if you have your slightly more sort of, Tony friends coming over to your house. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a strong, but also a very like, you know, gritty collection in some respects. And I quite, I think I absolutely applaud that in terms of their, their, yeah, they were in Boston. ability to kind of go out on them. Yeah. And they were in Boston. They weren't in New York. I mean, like, just yeah. imagine their Boston friends coming over and seeing that Richter yeah, n- orgy. No one I grew up with in Boston had <laughs> anything like this on the walls, man. <laughs> I mean, maybe like, you know, with some Morris Lewis or something in here. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely my, uh, no one on Nantucket is, uh, it's right. got anything like this. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not an Nantucket collection. Um, yeah. then, over to York Avenue, uh, the, the New York sales, as they're calling them, presented in partnership with Celine. Unfortunately, Great look. Unfortunately, it's the new Celine, not it's the old Eddie Celine. 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's Dude, true. That's, that's true. Yeah. Is Hetty going to be there just, just taking pics? Um, I wonder if he'll be a, I wonder if Wearing he'll be skinny jeans? Um, so Mo Austin, for those who don't know, like, uh, a key figure in, in rock and roll soul mm-hmm. music, uh, uh, of the late 20th century. Um, and it looks like he had quite a collection here. 
My iPad's not working, yeah. so I can't open it up. I mean, it's in terms of kind of mirroring that same uh, approach to art. Mm-hmm. Uh, Feinberg's, I think they really went very interdisciplinary, um, you know, uh, going from great Cecily Brown to wonderful de Kooning. I mean, the two Magritte's are an absolute sort of standout. Totally. Um, both came through uh, Geffen's collection. And, you know, obviously with... Uh, with uh, other examples from the series, you know, was the, the recent world record price that um, was set last year in March for almost $80 million. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I think it's, it's all the kind of keynotes of exactly what you'd, you'd want from, you know, great fresh material, you had a quite insightful eye. And it was, you know, what I like a lot too, is just going through in a very nerdy way was just seeing some of the prior collections, so whether it was Geffen or Dullet for the Twombly, which was, had one of the best Twombly collections. Um, you look at um, even the sort of work on paper, Lichtenstein was Gunter Sachs's. So he had this kind of real interesting history for a lot of the paintings as well, which I quite, quite enjoyed going through. Um, but I think it'll be an interesting one to see how the overall public reacts um, because some examples are fantastic. Some are kind of so-so, but I think they've priced them well enough that they should be able to, to kind of at least find buyers. Yeah, they're, they're attractive estimates here, although I, I agree with you. They're not, they're not always the examples you would think of when the artist's name comes up um, if you're a general market buyer. Um, and that is uh, the same night they have their modern evening auction. Is that right? I yeah. think so. Um, yeah. Um, what are the big highlights of the modern well, evening sale? You know what's a highlight for me is, and this is you know, this is because it's not a market I'm involved in. I'm merely a semi-educated enthusiast. Is like the fact that you can get a pretty um, typical, like kind of to my eye, perfect Mirandi for one to one point five million dollars just seems insane to me. Although I noticed it already had a third-party guarantee on it, so maybe <laughs> maybe that's a, maybe that's a, a just an attractive uh, estimate. Um, but what a great little picture that was in the view. Yeah, perfect. Uh, I mean, I'm. Yeah, I think it's a sensational painting, and um, I think it's also kind of a come get me estimate, considering what recent comparable works have done at auction and kind of in the private side. Um, I've done quite a lot in the last couple of years with Mirandi, and uh, this is you know just an absolute gem. I also um, want to say they did the uh, most interesting. You, you didn't see this lock. They did the most beautiful installation in one of kind of the interior rooms over on that right hand side where they usually put the. Uh, this kind of modern material where they had a timeline uh, from 1875 to like 19 something uh, across the top. And then they had, they showed where the pictures are in a continuum. So you could kind of see the evolution of art making over that time, at least as, mm. as exemplified by the pictures that they happened to be selling this season. But it was a pretty cool uh, kind of art history for dummies view. I liked it. Mm. Um not from a necessarily a, a value perspective, but probably one of my favorite things in this uh, um, sale is the the Hammershoy, mm-hmm. the sort of interior music room. It's just again like yeah, kind of got has everything going for it in terms of what you want from a Hammershoy. Um, it's a you know, great year. Um, I realize just how much we talked about the market, but that's what this podcast is about. But the price was very high price was set for one from the Ann Bass collection six, you know, in uh, May last year. Um, so like for 6.3. So I think at three to five, I would frankly rather have this painting. Um, that's my sort of personal, personal taste of this. Um, 
I also found it inter like fascinating. If you look at each sale in Sotheby's, they call it provenance, except for this auction, they call it origin. Wow. Did you notice that? I, I, I didn't, didn't notice that. I kind of explain a lot more of it. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I'm sure it's some kind of like restitution type. I was going to say, I wonder, what like the link to, I wonder, I wonder like, what the link to restitution is there with that language change. It probably is. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that there was, um, it's not that many uh, uh, percentage wise, but there are a couple of, um, a couple more American pictures in the sale than I would have thought of. Mm. Um, Edward Hopper, uh, even putting O'Keefe in the sale. Um, I think there's one or two other things. I guess the Motherwell makes sense and de Kooning because of the European background. But I think of these modern sales usually of having pictures with a European origin of their maker. Um, so I thought that was kind of uh, interesting because it, it does fit within, I would think, the rationale for collecting of this era. But it stood out to me. And Edward Hopper was Edward Hopper was fantastic. Yeah, really. And we've seen one. kind yeah. of I think an interest in this type of American picture making, um, even coming through to contemporary collectors. I think a lot of the work that Brendan has done at Karma with, you know, kind of looking back at some of these, you know, Northeastern painters, mm -hmm. uh, they're not just undervalued, but actually kind of were part of a modernist movement and kind of like, and, and then are really a direct link to then what happens um, in the post-war era. And I think that's kind of interesting. I wonder if you'll see continued inward looking at American artists um, of the, the, the late 19th and early 20th century uh, in the market space. And this is being sold by the Whitney. It is. They're, they're selling that. And I believe one other picture, I can't remember which it is. Uh, and they clearly, the Whitney has, you know, a great collection of Hopper. Uh, I don't think they will be missing this. I still don't like this notion of museums selling off to buy. I mean, I know it's, it's totally accepted, but this, you know, I don't know. I'm an old, I'm an old fashioned girl is the thing. This notion of like, Oh, look, we have this upside on this picture. We should sell it because we can buy a whole bunch more thi more things to extend the collection. I don't know. If I were to have gifted that picture, it would, we, we've talked about this before. We have. We have. I and mean, well, there's, there's, there's no way to win here. The world, has, the world has moved past me. Um, it was gifted by, I think, Hopper's <laughs> daughter to the museum. Yeah. I mean, just what, you know, what, what then, um, uh, you know, induces an artist today to give Sorry, their work. Hopper's to, wife. Sorry. To, you know, an artist or an artist family. To I think that's them. the big thing with collectors is like, why should we give this? I mean, I, I do understand that so much of a museum's collection sits in storage and doesn't get necessarily seen or rotated that much, but equally, and also if they have something that's comparable um, and they've got two or three that are quite comparable examples, it sort of makes sense. But I find if I was the person who gifted of my mother or if my grandmother or whomever had gifted something, I would be quite upset to seeing come up to totally auction. yeah because that's, that's your family kind of history and then just to have it reduced to a to a commercial object we'd ra rather save the picture and sell it myself for the grandkids mm -hmm. anyway so. the now evening auction i believe is the next Woo! sale no oh, hold on the only thing i'm sorry i know yeah I'm sorry sorry listeners i too <laughs> no we're here for it we're here for it they can the, wait the big they can one wait. is 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 the the klimt that's coming up yeah um, let's talk about the klimt that's sorry. kind of yeah, yeah it's yeah. all right the sort of big boy of the of the sale, um, I think it's you know gorgeous example, slightly atypical in terms of right. its you know overall perspective and aesthetic, but um, you know it's backed at the region of forty five million dollars. Um, I think it does have some enough kind of commercial appeal to it, especially following off the backs of the Paul, Paul Allen, um, Clint, the Birch Forest, um, which made over a hundred million dollars. I think it seems I don't want to say well priced, but priced within a you know. Uh, a, a, a relative bracket that makes sense for them. So I don't uh, know. 
you know, this is so off piste for me that I don't know enough about it, but I'll say this looking at the painting in the view, it doesn't mm-hmm. scream Klimt at me. It does the way that if I'm gonna this drop fifty the... the way if I'm gonna drop fifty million bucks, like I want something that's I personally would want something that screams Klimt. It's in fact so much so that they had to write his name in huge script above the painting in the view. I that was the one comment I've had from a lot of people, just the sort of atypical nature of the work, but you know, it's still a beautiful painting nonetheless. But um I think it's yeah, not your classic uh you know, just trying to tick the box. Um going for sort of i mean it's a trophy but i think it's still you have to be slightly sophisticated to go for it so yeah well hopefully you have some sophistication if you get 50 million dollars yeah <laughs> although although time and time again, time, time, and time again proven wrong. <laughs> i've been proven wrong um <laughs> which is a is actually a perfect segue to the now evening auction which is uh um which is kind of where I live. I mean, there's a lot that I know about in the sale in terms of um, the markets for these pictures. Um, very interested to see Justin Kagot, which is lot one, uh, relatively uh, new to market, secondary market artist. Uh, shows with Carol Green here in New York and Stuart Shave mm-hmm. in the UK. I'm not sure if he has any other guys. Beautiful painter, beautiful painting. Now, he both makes flat works like this, which are painted on canvas and then affixed to a backing, uh, you know, kind of tacked onto a onto a wooden frame, as well as stretch paintings. Um, we'll see how this does. It'll clearly blow way past this estimate. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see it make a million dollars. Jade. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Jade, I don't know. Um it's not a very attractive example in terms of the colors. Um, I don't know. I got into it a little bit as, as with some of, some of these per, uh, personnel. As I said, these are all the right names, but maybe not some of all the best examples of what the market wants by them. I think that theme is... Conchi- and uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, MM, uh, for this. Um, this is a sale, by the way, that over the past two or three iterations have been white glove sales. Right. Um, so I know that's something that they're very attached to. Um, uh, Nicole Eisenman, it's a really nice example, but maybe not the example. I'd say... Uh, the Henry Taylor, uh, conversely, I think that's a great. Yeah. It's a great, great picture. Painting. It was just in his Mocha uh, retrospective mm-hmm. so or survey I guess it's show. Not going to the Whitney with the rest of them. I don't. I'm not sure. You know, sometimes they ask you right. when you yeah, bid yeah. on something like this. So I, I didn't look at the language in the catalog here. You know, that's a market that's been primed to take off, and there's been some solid results, but it hasn't quite hit the next level yet. And I am. Uh, I have no financial interest in this picture, but I'm hoping, and I think the time is right, that this is the picture that really sets his sets his market up. And that's important, not just because you know someone makes money, but there's a whole level of collectors that won't look at something until it's continually making a certain sort of price for potential uh, addition to their to their collections. So hopefully, this will broaden his support in the market. I love this painting; it's absolutely incredible. Um. Yeah, I'm just scamming down. The Laura Owens looked really, it looks much better in the view than it does in the image. Again, I feel like they overestimated this for by about $500,000. This thing would, I think, potentially fly off a one to one five estimate. Um, and I think this is just, you know, um, while while her work is highly desirable, the market is very specific about, about what it wants. This is almost exactly what it wants, but not quite. It could have a bit more bright color in it, um, but mm-hmm. it still has that wonderful built up huge la- uh, sections of impasto. Um, but I think, you know, uh, that estimate is concerning to me. Um, perhaps the best Matthew Wong I've ever seen in person. You think so? Yeah. It's an incredible painting. Yeah. Incredible it's painting. really good in person. Oh, the, yes. The drunk. Yes. It's, it's, it's really, amazing. really incredible. Um, uh, the Mark Bradford is a very commercial painting by Mark. Um, again, that estimate feels a little high, uh, to me. Um, 
Steve, great to see Stephen Shearer and really so I'm just going down. Sure. You know, um, the Wade Guyton, you know, Wade's market, like it has begun to reemerge a little bit. Um, uh, it never really yeah. went away. Um, again, I this estimate is a little bit aggressive to me, and my guess is it's what they needed to get the consignment, which was taken in without a guarantee at one two to one eight. I think one to one five was probably a better estimate. I still expect it um, to sell. And uh, and that's that's uh, that's all the color I have. Did you anything stand out to you from your market knowledge, Locke? Uh, it seems to be you know the Nara market seems to be continuing to sort of chug along. Obviously, not the same sort of numbers that we saw a few years ago, but it's a nice example um, with Hayes days. But uh, I think that'll be a good sort of test to where things stand um, following the Hong Kong sales. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, an, it's such a big estimate, but it's, it's a great painting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, it's interesting that we have a few Julian Wynn paintings in the sales this, yeah. this week, and they're all sort of older ones that I don't think are the best examples of his. Maybe this is a Matthew Marks thing again. I don't know. You are correct, sir. Yeah. They're they're okay. not what the market has has desired, and mm-hmm. I think that market is highly unstable right now mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons that we won't go into on the pod so as not to get sued. Um, but uh, I just found it interesting that there are older works when I think his works... The newer, the newer work's was, better and the newer work is what the market wants. Exactly, yeah. Um, exactly. You know, right name, but maybe not the right example. Um, and I'm definitely going to get a call from Sotheby's about that. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's okay. They're my they're my friends, and I wish them the best. And I hope they have another white glove sale. Uh, it's 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 that auction is uh, is led by uh, one of my favorite people uh, to take auction sales. Our own Michael McCauley. So, Shout out, Michael McCauley. Um, good guy. Um, and that leads uh, leads into their contemporary evening auction. And this is one of those cases where it's uh, the separation between the two is a little bit confusing to me. I'm wondering, you know. Will the Nara do better because it's in that sale, or would it have done better in the context of some Great of this question. higher value stuff? I don't know. Um, I think in some ways they're trying to sort of have highlights in each sale so that people actually come to the auction um, and try to get there early and try and you know fill, fill the room. But other than that, yeah, I, I do think it probably would have benefited a bit more of the the general evening sale auction. But again, these descriptions are a little fungible, so. Yeah. Uh, again, we have another great, but not as important Christopher Wool, and I think uh, a lot of what happens. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure how how affected the price on this will be actually by the the much more special multicolor one. Over but at this one is Center. great, though. I mean, this I, is fantastic. Personally, I would prefer to live with this one. Please, 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 please. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, everyone's everyone's talking in different ways about the Jean Michel Basquiat. Now's the time. Um, I think this is a. For me, this is a tough painting um i would totally agree um i think it's got a real interesting history place in who he is as an artist and the kind of rough nature of it and it's got obviously scale to it but it's i I just think it's a pushy number for something like this in my in my opinion but I think I think a lot Peter of people. Have, I, think, I think a lot of people have similar <laughs> opinions. Um, you know, uh, I I wish them all look. It'd be a cool thing to own, but this is going to go into the category of if I can if I only buy one Basquiat, I don't think this would be the one I would want to own. Yeah, I mean that's that's it. It's sort of 
adds to a collection of two or three to kind of give that context. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah. if you're spending this much money on something, it's probably going to be your more or less one-off kind of acquisition. And I, I, I find it difficult to, to think of. It would make that much, but we'll um, you know, we've already spoken a little bit about Blinky Palermo. This example is absolutely divine. It looks fantastic in yep. the view. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's better than Momo's painting. It's a really killer picture. Yeah, so. I didn't look at the CR, but it looks exceptional to me. Um, and I also really like the Gerhard Richter Vesuvius. The Vesuvius is very nice. Um, there's a couple of great Richters in this. There's Vesuvius, which I think is quite. It's got a really nice sort of. Um, airy sky to it. Um, there's a lot of really great gems, but the this Richter, the um, the abstractus build that was lot two is also mm -hmm. quite juicy. Kind of great dates came straight from Dolphin, same collection. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously the four thousand ninety six Farben is. I mean that's sort of my wheelhouse just because I curated the. Um, Color Threats exhibition, which was the first retrospective for Gerhard of that nature. Um, we were focusing really on the 1966 works, which was the first body of works. There were 19 in that, that group. Um, and then he kind of started reapproaching it in 1971. And then the big kind of push and the return to it was in 73, 74, where this is from. Um, this work was actually the cover of one of the volumes of the Catalogue Raisonnet. Um, but it's you know there's there's only like 14 i think monumental examples that mm. he kind of made in this this last this last iteration so it's a really really rare type of work and um you know you have to look at the condition of a lot of these especially like the one the pompadou because of the the sort of the paint he's actually used for it um any kind of bump against it tends to show crack over a little bit but wow. um other than that it's you know it's a sensational painting. So, and do these trade? Like, I, if there's only eighteen of them or so at the scale, probably not. But on the private market, like, where you know, it, it's not an unattractive just, estimate. They're but it's so juicy. they're just so rare. But I think you do get a lot of people who buy Richter in depth because he has so many different approaches to painting. And the reason why I love these works, and the reason why I was very keen to do an exhibition with him on this this material, was the fact that this was his first real foray into abstraction. And he's an artist who sort of mastered both figure figuration and abstraction. And this was that sort of initial, very, I'd say daring approach to it. Um, we did this <laughs> great uh, vitrine where it was all the articles that were written at the, the time when he did the, the show and they were all just savage. making fun of how terrible they are. I mean, savage articles. Just Dylan going but, electric, you know, like the people weren't yeah. ready. That's the thing. It was a real push. And I think it was really difficult for people to understand what they were looking at, especially going from these great sort of figurative paintings from, you know, years before. Great exhibition title, uh, mate. Dylan going electric for like a, a show of works by artists <laughs> that like totally changed their style and, and works from that first body after they changed it. Let's work on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're going to workshop yeah. that yeah. Uh, off pod. Um, what else is it? I'm trying to think uh, about. I walked through the entire. There's a great view. Tebow that I like. Um, I mean, it's uh, for those who like Tebow. I love um, Tebow. Yeah. That, that market. That market seems a little bit. Uh, a little bit soft. This right is a now. really good one, though. It is a really good one. Yeah, 1969. It's got scale to it. Some great photos of um, Tebow in the 1984 or 1985 um, 
SF MoMA exhibition. Oh, um, what an elegant man. I'm looking at them now. What a dude. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think overall, I I have to say the the sale overall this time is quite, quite strong. I I would expect to do well. I mean, even from like the Ad Reinhardt to the little Ava Hesse drawing to the Selmans, like these are, I mean, and it's sort of nerds things but I it's a, it's a sophisticated it. sale walking through it like it's a sophisticated sale they have this great room that includes like the ellsworth kelly the Cole andre the flavin uh the camargo like this wonderful black and white room that just yeah. like it looks like a museum curated kind of space i you know to give them a lot of credit for that and then i obviously one of the standouts is the bourgeois spider um yeah which what is, do we think listen it's guaranteed and from this series, there's two, so it's an edition of six plus one AP, two of those are museums, one's of the Kemper, um, which I love, and the Liam Museum in Seoul. The record was set in 2019 for a very comparable work, and that made 32 in some change. Um, obviously, if this lands between 30 and 40 million, it's already setting a record price. and. You've got that kind of great history of it. You know that it's going towards, you know, a more um, uh, sort of foundational benefit, so people might be more encouraged to to buy. But it's you know between kind of Hauser having one of these major ones in uh, Basel, having one come up the year before, this one coming up, they feel less difficult to acquire. I mean, they're expensive, but it seems like there are you know a few of these out there, so you may not have that same desire to. That that was kind of my feeling in the view. I was like, oh, that's cool. Another one, you yeah. know? And I think to, to really see the kind of maximum result you might want for something like this, you want to have the, oh, wow, you know, moment. And I feel like because there's been some that have come up and been on view recently, that might not be there. Although, listen, you know, if you have a private museum or foundation somewhere, no matter where it is in the world, you know. You kind of have to have it, yeah. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's, it's just going to draw that gate, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that... Kind of it, except we've got Phillips, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll just uh, we'll zip through this. Um, I have not seen The View yet, which I feel a little guilty about. Um, great Andy Warhol fright wig uh, That's that right. I really like. Do you, do you want to hear the story about this Oh, one? I do. I can yes. tell from your face there's a story. So I, as you know, grew up mainly in Tucson, Arizona. And when I was there... Tell me if I've, stop me if I've told you this, but I think I know um, where you're going, but I don't think you've told me, but I know because Tucson. Yeah. So I was, um, I had just graduated and my uncle knew Richard Polsky somehow. And so he put me in touch with him. He was at the time selling his house. It was a small house downtown. And I went down and met him. And it was that sort of summer where I'm living at home, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I know I'm moving to New York City. And he advised me, because I wanted to work in the art world, to either go to a Christie's or Sotheby's. And so I sort of took his lead. And uh, after moving to New York and having to work two jobs, uh, because I made more money managing a restaurant at night um, than I did at Christie's, being an assistant, um, you know, it, it was like the great advice that I got from him. And the joke was when we were at his house, it was the first thing you saw when you walked in. And he was doing an open house of people um, uh coming through to, to to buy the place and we were laughing that the painting was probably worth more twice as much as the actual house he was selling and as sort of a uh as a gift he gave me a copy of i bought andy warhol which this was on the cover of and it was this long story about him spending his entire life 
buying and selling Warhols. And this was the final one he was going to live with. And then I, um, uh, about a year into my working at Christie's, I noticed a painting looked very similar to his. And then I saw him in the view and he said, the price was just too good. I had to sell it. It just made so, so much sense to sell. And so it went to auction and um, that was sort of the end of it. And then I moved to London and my first trip I did in Europe was in Scandinavia. And I walked into the client's home. And the first thing I saw when I walked into his home was this painting. <laughs> and it was just wild singing from Tucson, Arizona <laughs> to New York City. So kind of a little bit off the beaten path in, in, um, in Scandinavia. So it was quite, quite, quite fun. But um, yeah, definitely an old friend. And sadly, I was tried to, to do something with this prior to the sale, but it was a short window I had. So. I believe Richard wrote yeah. another book after that called called i, I sold, sold Eddie world <laughs> too soon <laughs> too soon <laughs> I've, I've read both books but i think the first one i read i think when i was in college or just after college before i was in, at all involved in the art market i, I should probably revisit it i mean richard richard is is a, a a friend and a source sometimes and he is an incredible font of knowledge and i love talking to him and completely uh, yeah uh, an amazing guy uh love to have him on the pod actually that'd be fun um, so I, I wish I had more to say about anything else in the sale. I l absolutely love the Sturdivant. Speaking of Warhol, the Sturdivant study from Marilyn Monroe um, is incredible. Yeah, um, that's really great. But uh, nothing else really stood out to me. You know, it's always a challenge for for them to get the property they want for an evening sale. Um, and uh, I think they'll, they'll 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 do okay. It's not my favorite Henry Taylor, but it's a nice one. It's a really attractive estimate at eighty to one twenty. Um, certainly different than the one that is over at York. Um, great Ryman. Um, you know, kind of more of the same. Anything standing out to you, Nate? I don't know. The Noah Davis could uh, be exciting to watch. Maybe. I think it's a pretty good one. Um, it's hard to get any work by Noah Davis these days. Guys? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That's, uh, uh, Noah Davis is still incredibly in high demand. I've been able to sell them privately for a fair amount of money. I like this one. I don't love it, but... Um, I think it should do quite well. Um, someone who really left us far too soon. And I like the Robert Cole Scott. Speaking oh, yeah. of Tucson, Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's so weird because he was um, uh, he was at or he was they were selling a painting the day sale and at the time it was like ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And I saw in the back, he wrote his studio address and it said Tucson, Arizona, and actually ended up getting in touch. And he came to one of the auctions and I actually got to spend a lot of time with him oh, really? so before cool. he passed away. Yeah. We had this great drawing and it was like a vignette called something with Aunt Jemima and Colonel Sanders. And it was like this comic it was overtly sexual. And I'm sitting here talking to this, you know elderly gentleman in a wheelchair about the painting. It was probably one of the more com uncomfortable conversations about the physical work of art just because it was so aggressive and amazing for like, you know, like, like early 1970s, but an amazing artist and, you know, somebody super, super highly rated. So he's the real deal. And I'm so, I'm so happy that the market has come to embrace him, you know, a little bit too late, but you know, like an incredible maker. One thing to note about this Cole Scott is it was at one point in the collection of Bill Cosby. <laughs> just, just, I mean, I just read that on the website, so just, just reporting facts here. I think I would have probably put that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, I guess we, I mean, we should probably talk about with their star a lot. I mean, you know, I just it drives me uh, absolutely batty and up the wall. But you know, um, 
the Banksy Basquiat painting. I have nothing to mm. say about it. I've, honestly, it's just annoying, but it is what it is. I think it's also tough because it's gigantic. It's, you know, I keep thinking in centimeters, but it's, you know, it's 135 inches wide. Like it's going to be a tough play for anyone who buys that. But, and I just feel like that, that groundswell that had happened really is dissipated. So trying to put this in as your sort of top lots, a real kind of, I don't know. It seems Listen, like a risky it's, move. It's going to sell. They got a guarantor. It's going to sell to the guarantor. No matter how they make it look in the sales room, I feel pretty confident that this will sell to the guarantor. Just wouldn't want to be the auctioneer. <laughs> oh, Henry. Henry, he'll hold it together. He's really matured he up there. He's really matured up He's there. Done, that's yeah. a really, really, really... They're all a tough job. That's an especially tough job. Uh, and he started out pretty young doing it. And uh, I think he's really yeah, no, he's, grown into he's those shoes quite up. well. Yeah. And a good friend of the pod. Man, that's a lot. There's a lot of art for sale. Woo! Now, I have to say, you know, in general, uh, I'm not sure about you guys over there. And especially you're at a, a, a slightly higher price point. But, you know, things have not been flying off the shelves the way we were used to them doing even a year ago. Um, we had two fairs okay. last week. We have freeze this week. Uh, Basel is four weeks away, uh, give or take. Um, There's just a lot followed by the London sales, of course. There's just an awful lot of art on the market. It makes me nervous all the time, but given what I'm seeing right now where people are taking much more time to make decisions, even if they come to yeses, um, I'm wondering how the rest of this week will perform. I think the star lots will do okay. We didn't get into the day sales, but I think there could be some some choppy sections. Yeah, I would tend to agree. And I think there's, as you said, there's a lot of material out there. Thankfully, a lot of it is coming from, you know, storied collections, but equally it's, it's, it's going to be tough for the market to absorb that coupled with, you know, multiple art fairs taking place at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. And I think, you know, as we began to discuss and we don't need to get into it too much, but you know, not to belabor the point, but you know, just with, now that they've sliced and diced the auctions into so many, it's just so hard to get the collecting population's attention. Uh, I think, you know, it's going to be incumbent upon the auction houses to really, you know, be on the game in terms of their outreach to make sure they get decent sell-through rates. Um, the things that are going to sell themselves are easy enough. They sell themselves, but, you know, and that's what you kind of get all the glory for, these crazy results. But it's it's down in the trenches, uh, Get you know, just eking that single bit out of someone against the reserve. That's where the, that's where the, that's where the sausage gets made. Mm-hmm. You and I know it both, both very well. Kind of miss it. I'm glad I'm not up there, but I kind of miss it. <laughs> yeah. There is something I'm like, it's such a masochist approach to it, but like, yeah, I kind of do miss these days sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the Monday of, it's a Monday of auction week at two 30 and I'm recording a podcast while wearing a tie dyed sweatshirt. <laughs> it's a Dan Cullen sky high farm tie dyed sweatshirt. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> to be clear, it's a very, very limited edition, but, um, uh, all right, Locke, we miss you. We're sad that you're not here. We miss um, you, Locke. We, we said you're not able to make it to dinner tonight. We're gonna have to reconvene. Uh, I know I will see you in Basel. Um, yes, definitely, uh, and, and hopefully maybe even Zurich for a night before that. You know, we'll really make it really? make a go of it. Um, thank you so much. Thanks, you, bud. Bring your expertise to this so that us dilettantes look good. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, and I love seeing your music room with the drum kit in the background. Yeah. And the skateboards. <laughs> yeah, and the skateboards. He's a Keep man of multitudes, so Kressler. A man of multitudes. <laughs> All right, we get to dial off. We get we get things to do. You get to, you got to go feed the kids and whatnot. Um, we'll talk to you later, man. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Right. Bye, luck. Bye.